Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Whom he, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So as we, we move into this conversation with John, let's remember where we've come from. Does anybody remember the last conversation that uh, we talked about last Wednesday? Pilate, right? Pilate, the Roman governor. And uh, Jesus is standing there. We actually took the last two weeks. Uh, we left last time with that. And when the leaders uh, said, we have no king but Caesar, it was effectively a rejection of Jesus as their king. I didn't point that out last time, but I thought that was pretty obvious to us that, that they were rejecting Jesus as their king. And uh, they were saying that we have no king but Caesar, which they, they definitely didn't give their allegiance to. And so they sold him out to the Roman overlords, and uh, uh, Jesus, who said to them, how often I would have gathered you, but you would not. You remember, he's coming into Jerusalem, and he, he looks at the city, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a, a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. And I can't help but think that in that sigh, he was thinking of the history of the prophets who constantly tried to gather the people of God, but they wouldn't respond to him. And, and now the sun has come. Do you remember that, uh, that great parable Jesus told about the vineyard and uh, about sending the prophets, the different prophets to come, the vine workers? And then finally they rejected all of them and they said, here comes the sun. If we can kill him, we can take possession of the vineyard. And so the sun has come and uh, they're going to kill him. And Pilate would have concluded this trial by pronouncing a formula, Ebus ad crucem, which is you go to the cross. And with that, Jesus would have been sent away to be crucified. Um, then we have some other things that happen between here and there. We're not trying to study all of John. We're trying to look at the conversations in John. And so uh, we know that the uh, soldiers divided Jesus's garments and cast lots for them. And there were people that were mocking and there was a sign that went over that said the king of the Jews and, and all of that. And then it moves to this intimate scene where there's not a lengthy conversation. I didn't count the words in, uh, in Greek. There's probably a different amount of words because they, their language structure is a little bit different. But it's a very brief, uh, a very brief conversation in English, in the NIV at least, um, one, two, three, four, five one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, nine words in the NIV uh, this conversation is. And it's actually just one direction. It's Jesus speaking to uh, a disciple. And yet, in this, it gives us a portrait of Jesus that we wouldn't get from anywhere else because the person telling the story was the one who was there. Okay, we don't hear this in Mark's gospel or Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel or Certainly not in the Gospel of Thomas, uh, which uh, if you're wondering what that is, that's not in our canon. Uh, don't go reading that for your spiritual edification. 
But uh, we don't hear about any of this. We have a group of women standing around the cross. Almost the entire group of disciples have scattered to save themselves, right? What's the verse that's quoted related to that? Do you remember? What's Yeah, but what are the words? Smite the shepherd, strike the shepherd, and the, the sheep will scatter. And so they've all gone their separate ways. Why? Why do you think? Fear. They're afraid. As, as loud as they've boasted, Thomas, let's go that we may die with him. Peter, uh, we'll die with you, Lord. We promise. <laughs> and then the moment comes, and we often don't know how weak our character really can be. And that moment came, and uh, they were all gone. And yet... It's interesting, there's a group of women that are surrounding Jesus, and they're there at the cross. And so all, almost all of the disciples have scattered to save themselves. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, says it would seem that the entire circle of 11 men, of them, only one was at the cross. But there were several women, all honor to them, their courage, and their love. And so here in uh, this passage, John mentions four women. I had a graphic for this. I apologize. It's not up there. But maybe we can figure this out as we think through it, okay? So uh, what are the four women that are mentioned here? Look at your... Yeah, okay. Okay, so we have an ant. Or how does it say it in in the text? His mother's sister. Okay, who else? Mother, Mary, his mother. Not, it doesn't even say her name. It just says his mother. Um, who else is there? Mary Magdalene. And then Mary, the wife of Clopas. Sounds like Mary's a popular name, doesn't it? Okay. And actually, uh, Mary is Miriam. I hope you know that. So uh, we're, not, we're, we're talking about somebody who's been named... Uh, a group of people, a group of ladies here who've been named after one of the heroes of Israel. There's at least three Marys here, and we would assume that whoever Mary's sister is is also is not named Mary. Would you agree with that? It's probably unlikely she's named Mary. So whoever his sister is in this list is is probably, or her sister, I should say, uh, is not uh, Mary. Okay. Matthew has um, three names, and so does Mark. Matthew has... Mary Magdalene, okay? Uh, this is in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-five. if you'd like to turn there real quick. Uh, Mary Magdalene, and then Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, okay? And this is uh, James and Joseph. Make sure you get those right, James and Joseph, okay? And then the mother of Zebedee's sons, okay? Have you followed that so far? What are they again? Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, okay? And then Mary, uh, or not Mary, it's the mother of Zebedee's sons, okay? So who are Zebedee's sons? James and John. What's another nickname for them? Okay, and and that's kind of a derogatory name. I hope you know that he's referring to their temper. Like, you guys need to temper your temper. You guys are like thunder, well, it could have been the dad's temper, but we see it in the boys because when they go to Samaria, they're ready to call down fire from heaven upon those people. And Jesus says, what spirit are you of? So I don't think it's a positive 
trait that he's referring to when he calls them the sons of thunder. Maybe he's affectionately but calling them that, but he's recognizing, you guys got a temper problem, we need to tame. And so it's ironic that John, who was one of the two, would be known as the apostle of love. So we have that here. And then Mark's list, if you want to turn there, Mark 15, 40 through 41. This would be so much easier if we had it here, and I apologize again. But Mark 15, 40 through 41, we have Mary Magdalene mentioned. We have Mary, the mother of James, and James the younger, and Joseph. And then we have another name that appears there, Salome. Salome, okay? So you got three names there. We have... uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and and Joseph. Okay, we've seen those names before. And then we have a new one, Salome. Okay, and then this third list uh, is Luke, or the fourth list is Luke, but all he has to say is there were uh, the women from Galilee. (laughs) So he doesn't spend a lot of time, which is interesting and ironic because of all the Gospels, Luke spends more time dwelling on the stories of women than any other writer. So that's kind of interesting that that happens here, and uh, I'm not sure why. God knows. So we want to look through this a little bit because I think it's interesting and uh, I think informative a little bit when you do your Bible study uh, to understand where all these names come from. I'm going to leave my list up here so I can take a look at it. All right, if you do have paper, this would be a great place to sketch out a diagram. Um, But if we attempt to correlate the four people whom John refers to with the three listed in Matthew and Mark, then we have Mary Magdalene in all three of those lists, right? Okay, She's named. Let's just set her to the side a little bit. We don't know much about her. I think this is the first time she appears in the Gospel of John, and then we see her again in the garden when Jesus is resurrected. Luke refers to her as one out of whom Jesus cast seven spirits. So this is uh, Mary Magdalene. All right, um, Mary of Magdala, it's a village on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee, two or three miles north of Tiberias, and she appears in four different these four different lists. Then you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. How many of the lists did we mention that she appeared in? Do you remember? Just the one, just John. John's the only place that mentions Mary, but we have to assume that she's there in all of them. But if you look at the other names... Then we have um, a Mary, the wife of Clopas, mentioned, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Not James and John, not Zebedee's sons, James and Joseph. Okay? And uh, we could probably, if we overlap these lists, we could understand that whoever Clopas is, he's got two sons too, named James and Joseph. Okay, So this is the same Mary. We would have to assume then the fourth of these is Salome, which means that she is the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and Mary's sister. You ever thought of that or know that, that James and John could be first cousins to Jesus? This is the traditional understanding, is that James and John are the cousins of Jesus. It often bothered me as an argument against the gospel that his brothers didn't follow. They later do, at least Jude and James. He's got a brother named James, which uh, we're talking about biblical names. James, his Jewish name would have been Jacob. So anytime you see James, that's Jacob. I have a nephew that, I have two brother nephews that are James and Jacob. 
And I don't think my sister realized that's the same name. It's the same name. So um, where were we in that? Okay, so they've, he's got brothers that don't believe, but he's got cousins that do. Okay, so whatever the argument could be from the skeptical side, I think uh, the argument that says because his brothers don't believe in him, we shouldn't believe in Jesus either, I think that's bunk. We see close cousins who would have known Jesus, who trusted in him. All right, so uh, that's an argument. There is a possibility that maybe this sister of Mary is somebody else, because in Mark's gospel, it does give us uh, in Mark chapter I think 15 verse 40, it says, and there were other women as well. So there's a possibility it couldn't be, but, but let's just think about this for a moment. I want to, I think there's some significance to this point, uh, that all of this could in fact point to the fact that John's mother and Mary were sisters. And the primary reason why these can't be certain is because of verse 41. I said verse 40, but verse 41 of Mark 15, it says many other women who had come up with him, to Jerusalem were there as well. And so the list can't necessarily, don't necessarily overlap or have to be overlapped, but there's good reasons to believe that this is, uh, this Mary's sister is the mother of James and John. Okay. Are you, are you willing to go with me through this a little bit? It may not seem practical at first, but I think we'll come to a point eventually. First, we have John's tendency away from, uh, things that recognize what relates to him. What is John's name for himself in John's gospel? The disciple whom Jesus loved over and over. And in this uh, particular context, he also refers to himself just simply later on as the disciple. Okay, so I think that's kind of interesting. He doesn't, has this reticence to name himself. And so we have a vague reference to Salome being the sister of Mary and uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And some of that evidence comes from the fact that John avoids referring to himself by name, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which happens in chapter 13, verse 23. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. John 21, verse 7, when the, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. What were they doing at that time? Do you remember? They're fishing in the Sea of Galilee. It's the Lord. And Peter's like throwing off his cloak and jumping in the water and swimming over to shore to be with Jesus. And then later on in that same um, setting in verse uh, 20 through 22 of John 21, it says that Peter and Jesus were having a little talk and Peter turned around and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. And Peter says, after he hears about his destiny? What about this guy? What about this disciple? And Jesus says, don't worry about him. You follow me. If I want him to remain until I come again, that's not your, that's not your business. You follow me. And so in uh, four, and then we have also in this passage that we're looking at here, John 20, four different occurrences of John referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Here's another interesting fact. John also avoids using his brother's name when referring to him in John's gospel. Did you know that? That he doesn't even mention, he doesn't like to mention James, his brother. So whenever he refers to that, he refers to things like the sons of Zebedee or sons of thunder or 
these disciples. He doesn't refer specifically to James. And then I think it's also interesting in light of the fact that John is not using uh, names of himself or his brother, that he would also not use Mary's name. How does he refer to Mary here in John? Well, in this passage in particular, not all of John. What's it say there? We looked looked at uh, verse 25 through 27. How does it refer to the Mary, the mother of Jesus? His mother. His mother. doesn't say Mary. His mother just says his mother. And then, in light of the fact that he's not naming people close to him like himself or his brother or his aunt, possibly, who else does he not mention by name here? Yeah, his mother's sister, Jesus' mother's sister. So you can see kind of this reticence to name that which is close to him. And I think there's some evidence here that this is uh, Salome, who's mentioned in other places, is his mom. D.A. Carson says it's remarkable that he alone of the evangelists mentions neither his own name nor the name of his brother, which makes it unsurprising that his mother and the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, is also unnamed. So Bible scholars tend to think, many of them, there's some exceptions to that, Raymond Brown is one, but they tend to think that uh, John and James's mother is the sister of Mary. Okay. Why is that important? Well, I'd like to come to that in just a moment. But the second reason uh, I think this makes sense, that it would be Jesus's cousin, John would be Jesus's cousin, is that it makes sense that Jesus would ask his cousin to care for his mom, okay? Not that it wouldn't be something he could ask other disciples and that they would have done it, but it makes a lot of sense that Jesus would have asked a close relative to him to care for his mother. So Jesus, you know, as the oldest of his brothers responsible to take care of his mother, he's at the cross. He's not going to be able to do that. And even when he's raised and he spends just a little over five weeks with his disciples, his issue is getting them ready for the time when he'll depart. And so he's turned over the care and the responsibility that would belong to the oldest to his cousin. You know, so it won't be possible for him to be there. And so it tells us something about the trust that he has in John for him to take care of his mother. And I I wondered, why not the other brothers? Because Jesus does have other brothers. Why do you think he wouldn't ask the brothers? What's that? They're non-believers. Okay. What's that? They're not there. Why aren't they there? That's a good question, too. There's Jesus going to the cross. Why are the brothers not there? Okay, fear overwhelms a potential belief, and I think that's probably acute in this moment because there's been times in Israel's history when all the brothers were executed together. And these guys aren't going to get executed with him because at this point, as far as we know, they don't even believe in him. Okay, I think it's in light of the resurrection that James and Jude uh, come to believe in it. And since we're, <laughs> since we're mentioning names, uh, I would like to point out that both Jude and Judas, dare we say it, actually is the Hebrew name what? Judah. Judah. Okay, so Jude, 
later on, Judah. All right, interesting, huh? So they're not there. So Jesus trusts and trusts his mother to John. Perhaps if the brothers had been there, they would have been told, but they weren't, and maybe for good reason. Um, I thought it was a little strange that it would be wouldn't that it wouldn't mention that James and John were Jesus's cousins in light of what we've been talking about. But do you realize that it never says exactly that John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin? It says that Mary had a cousin that was Elizabeth. It never says anything about John the Baptist being his cousin. We infer that from what's said, right? So it's not actually in there. I looked, at, I looked today just to make sure it doesn't say John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, although he is. He's related to him, but it doesn't say that. We have to infer that from the other evidence. And so it's not surprising then that John, who is writing this gospel, who's a little bit hesitant to mention his own name, not because he's afraid, but I think he doesn't want the attention to be on him. I think he wants it to be on Jesus, okay? That he wouldn't mention that they're cousins. He sees himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves, okay? So, uh, this might not, you might be thinking, what practical value does this have for my spiritual life? Um, it doesn't necessarily have an immediate practical value, but it gives us a more reasonable explanation about why he would ask John to care for his mother. And this is some of the internal evidence to me that suggests, uh, that reinforces the writing of the Gospel of John by John himself. The gospel doesn't topple without it. Like, it's not going to matter to your spiritual well-being, whether we know whether John is the cousin of Jesus or not. Uh, But I think it helps us to understand a little more of the context. And so it brings up here next an example of selfish living. Look with me again at these verses. Jesus is where? He's on the cross. He looks down, and what's the verb there? He looks down and he sees um, his mother and who else? This is in um, John 19.26. His, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. Jesus has a lot on his mind at the moment. Would you agree? He's at the cross. He's fulfilling the Father's plan. He looks down and he sees his mother and the disciple whom he loves standing nearby. So he sees. And then what's the next verb if we're to follow it out? After standing nearby, verse 26, the end of it. Maybe it's verse 27. He, He said, he said, he said to her, to her, what? Okay, but what's he say before that? Let's let's deal with all of the words here. Woman, okay? Uh, he addresses his mother as woman. And this is the same thing. Anybody remember another time where this happens? The wedding at Cana? Okay. Uh, this seems to be something John brings up in his writings. I don't know if it happens exactly like this in the other writings, but can you think of another time? There's another time when this thing happens. It happens two times in a similar uh, 
in, in one particular instance. That might be. I didn't think of that one. I was thinking in the context of John here. How about in the garden after the resurrection? Do you remember? the First, the angels say it to her, and then Jesus says, woman, to her. Mary Magdalene, right? Good. That's the, that's the one. And so he says there, woman, why are you crying? And uh, I wanted to bring this up because sometimes we can stumble over stuff like this. Uh, this particular address, when, he, when Jesus says to Mary, woman, uh, some people have tried to, and I've heard popular preachers say things like this, that Jesus is being disrespectful because he's commanding authority in that moment. And I want to suggest to you that that's reading into it our culture rather than reading out of the Bible what's there. Because in Scripture, and in that time, woman would have been seen as a polite address. Um, And so it's one of those instances that we have to be careful not to read our culture into the Bible. Uh, Among the aboriginals of Australia, it's, it's it's not considered impolite to call an elderly man old man. That's a term of respect, old man, because age isn't seen as a negative thing in Aboriginal culture. It's seen as a positive thing, that you get honor and respect for being old. And so to be called old man is not a derisive thing like it can be in our culture. And so same thing here. To call a married woman is not derisive. It's actually a term of respect. And so he uses that word, that word to address someone. Um, oh, we've seen it that way because we've seen it used in a derogatory way. But he uses it in a way that shows tender tenderness and respectful speech. And so we have to adjust to that in our reading of the Bible. And I hope you'll uh, hear what I say in this, that when we read the Bible, we have to be careful not to read our culture into it. We have to, that's called a... Isogesis that's reading in. We need to read out of the Bible. Take what's there and try to understand it in their setting and then translate it to ours. What Jesus is doing is not disrespectful from the cross. He's being respectful to his mom by calling her woman, which would have been a, uh, a, a respectful term in that setting. So he's showing tender respect. And if you look at your NIV here, I think, do you have a do you have a little uh, letter B next to the word woman? Okay, if you follow that to the margin, wherever it's at, you're going to see that it's going to say something like the Greek for woman does not denote any disrespect. So important to know that. Notice the next thing here, verse 26, is woman what? Behold your son, here is your son. Okay, here is here is your son. Uh it means something like, count on this disciple as you would a son. And since this is John, uh, it might be assumed that his mother is there. So I would encourage you to see this, that this assignment is not for John's sake. John doesn't need another mother. Are you with me? John doesn't need another mother. His mom's there. Now he's saying... Um, Woman, here is your son. So why would Jesus be saying that then? Is John so grief-stricken? We've already tried to establish the fact that this is, that John's 
mom is there, Salome. Okay, and if that's the case, I'm, I'm take, taking that assumption. If that's what's that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for her care. So we can probably assume, based on the absence of Joseph in any of those stories, based on the fact that Mary's there, based on the fact that John is um, needing to care for her, that Joseph has passed on already. And so she needs somebody to care for her. And that uh, responsibility, if the father's gone, would have gone to who? The oldest son. And since Jesus was born of a virgin, we have to assume he's the oldest. Are you with me? Okay, he's the oldest. And so the responsibility then to care for Mary falls to Jesus. But Jesus, following the will of the Father, is not going to be able to do that. Are you with me? He's got to die on the cross, one. Two, he's got to minister for many days after the resurrection, and then he's got to ascend to heaven. Who's going to care for it? Can he count on his unbelieving brothers? They probably would naturally be the ones to step in, but Jesus at this moment is not leaving that to chance. He's giving this responsibility to John. So this is for Mary's sake, so she can have somebody to rely upon uh, for comfort and care. And so that suggests, as we said, Joseph's passed away and that her other sons are not sympathetic with Jesus' ministry. At least they're not there. We know that. John, Jesus can count on. Look at verse 27 with me. Um, I don't know about owning property. I know that it, her financial options would have been very limited. Yes, and especially since um, in in Israel in that day, most people were paying really high taxes to support Rome. So everybody, were virtu- they were virtually beggars, and they were just getting by. Um, so you really needed in that day somebody to care for you that could go out and, and earn a living. Okay. Um, Jesus, they said, uh, his trade was technon, which uh, some have translated carpenter, but that could mean a lot of different things, builder. And it's suggested by a lot of people that he probably built farming implements, which would have been like plows and things, that he built those out of wood. And that would have made sense because he's, he's right on the, Nazareth's right on the Jezreel Valley where there's a huge wheat crop. So he had vocation, okay? And then when he wasn't working, he was doing itinerant ministry, people were caring for those needs, and often he traveled with a group of people. And so all of that would have been, would have been cared for. And some of that is speculation. I can't prove that he built farming implements. It just is probably a really good guess about what that's about. Um, He said the disciple, uh, here is your mother. Okay, which means care for her like you would your own mother. And it tells us that this is more than consolation for Mary. Like we might think in the moment, um, Jesus looking down from the cross Mary's heart is broken. All the women that are with her are mourning with her. And John is standing there. Maybe at that moment he would be a pillar of strength for her. Okay? And so one way that this could be understood is, can you care for my mom while I'm on the cross? Okay? But I would suggest to you that if that's intended, it's not that only. 
It's much more. It's what Jeremy's pointed out to us that somebody's going to need to take care of her from this time on. Okay, and we're coming to some points in just a moment that I think we'll we'll find. Uh, I hope we'll find enriching because this dealing with some of this technical stuff isn't always the most gratifying, but I think it's important. Okay, so care for her. And then it tells us that this is more than consolation for Mary because what's the next statement after here is your mother? What's that? Okay, from that time on, this disciple took her into his home and cared for her, right? So he's going he's gonna to take her and care for her. So this suggests to me this is more than just emotional support. He's asking for John to take care of his mom. Okay. I know that may not sound really profound, but there's some points to this that I think are worth drawing out. Uh, since Jesus is the oldest, that's his responsibility. He passes that on to John. It's his responsibility now that he won't be there to see that somebody else takes care of her, and he gives that responsibility to John. This disciple, John, would make sure that Mary has food and shelter and clothing, and what's interesting about this is that there's a tradition, I can't prove it, I don't know that anybody can, but there's a tradition that there's a house belonging to Mary in Ephesus, which is where John would have ministered from when he was taken to the island of Patmos, and then where he returned to after he returned from Patmos. So there's a traditional home there, I don't know if that's by courtesy of the Catholic Church, or if there's some legitimacy to that. But in Ephesus, there's supposedly a home, and if that is the case, that's where John is. That would suggest that he follows through with this for the rest of his life. And I don't know if you can count on it, but it's interesting. And the more important fact is that John cared for her until she died. She was probably, it sounds weird to our ears, but she probably could have been anywhere from 14 to 20 years older than Jesus. And that would have meant at the time of Jesus' death, it says that he started ministering when he was around 30. We don't know his exact age, but around 30. Okay, so that could have been anywhere from 28 to 32, probably, when he starts. And he dies on the cross somewhere uh, around, could be 33 to 35, maybe even up to 37 years old. So uh, this puts Mary uh, in her 40s to 50s, okay, depending on where you would uh, judge Jesus's age, somewhere in the 40s to 50s. So if she lives like John did, and you must assume that John had a really good diet because he lived to be how old? Anybody know? Just what, what decade? In his 90s, right? Lives to be in his 90s. Tradition said he even su- survived b- being boiled in oil. So he's some kind of tough cookie or he's, God's given him some supernatural ability to endure. Uh, but and he writes his gospel later in life, so he's older, and maybe Mary lived to be really old too. She's she could have another forty, maybe fifty years ahead of her beyond this. But Jesus is saying this because his ministry on earth is effectively through, and he's going to have to spend those uh, little over five weeks. We hear about that in Acts one three, ministering to his followers after he rises from the dead. But then he's going to ascend and. Uh, he needs to make sure that Mary would be provided for. It's my understanding that Mary's there in the upper room when everybody's filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we see ministry go on. But we have uh, here in Jesus' story, we have, first of all, 
um, obedience to the Father. Why is Jesus on the cross? Why is he on the cross? What's that? Yeah, it's the will of the Father. And then he says, I go there willingly. It's nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down freely and freely I take it up again. But he's doing it in obedience to the Father. And John especially, he's always saying things like, I only see that which the Father is doing. And so he's going in obedience to the Father. And this obedience to the Father means that he has to go to the cross. And his going to the cross means that he can't fulfill all of his responsibilities as the oldest son. He's got to save the world. There used to be this song by For Him. I don't know if you remember it. I don't remember the title of it, but it was some, the lyrics were something like this. When it's time to go, you got to let me go away and save the world. It's Jesus talking to Mary and how he's going to have to, he's going to have to go and save the world. And it's going to mean heartbreak for her. And she knew that from the beginning. Christmas is coming. And you remember in our Christmas story, we hear the prophet tell Mary, a sword will pierce your own heart. Your heart's going to be broken. Because he's going to go to the cross. And this is in obedience to God's will. It's why he was born. And so he has to do that in obedience to the Father. John Calvin said in one of his commentaries, it often happens that when God calls us to the performance of anything, our parents, our wife, our children, they they often draw us in a contrary direction so that we cannot give equal satisfaction to all. If we place men in the same rank with God, we judge amiss. We must therefore give the preference to the command, the worship, and the service of God, after which, as far as we are able, we must give to men what is their due. So Jesus has to go to the cross, even though it means his responsibility to his mother can't be fulfilled. And Jesus said one time when a man came, and I think this was merely an excuse He said, I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my father. Remember that? And Jesus sees right through it and says, let the dead, what? Bury their dead. Come follow me. And uh, that's actually a reference back to Elisha and Elijah. I don't know if you remember that story. Elijah finds Elisha in the field and throws the cloak over him. And Elisha says to Elijah, let me first bury my father. Let me return home and meet with my father. And Elijah says, well, what have I done to you? And, uh, of course, he goes and takes care of some business at home and then comes follow. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm worthy of a greater following than Elijah ever was. And, uh, of course, that man, it seems, went away. But he exemplifies this, that his first obedience has to be to the Father. While he obeyed God, Calvin goes on to say, God the Father, he did not fail to perform the duty which he owed as a son towards his mother. His concern is for others even while he's suffering. And this is the point I think we should we should dwell on tonight before we go. We've got just a few minutes here. But think about this that while he's on the cross suffering, the pain, the shame, the injustice He's thinking about others. He's caring for his mother's needs. You might not have considered this, but you realize Rome doesn't offer social security for the old and especially for a conquered people in the annexed land. And it's from taxing people like these that Rome is living high on the hog. 
You know that expression, high on the hog? It means to eat the better part of the meat. Okay? <laughs> Not just the hooves, the better part. And so that's what they're doing is they're taxing these people, and so they're not going to give them any benefits. If Mary is going to survive, it's going to be because somebody has cared for her. And so it puts her in a precarious position, Jesus going to the cross, especially now the mother of a convicted insurrectionist. Bruce Milne in his commentary says, while Christ was dying for the world, he expressed concern for the individual. How selfless it is that Jesus, while bearing the weight of the world, could also concern himself with a little personal universe of hope and pain. He can find us standing in the crowd to express personal concern. He looks down from his cross of suffering upon the suffering of Mary and says, I want to care for you. Think about that. The cross exemplifies love for the world. Jesus' statement right here exemplifies his love for the individual. And that's expressed in the cross too, but we can see it shown before us. What's the alternative to that? Well, how many times have people made a grandstand of their own suffering? When they're going through uh, the difficulty, they think of themselves. They get in self-pity. And, uh, of course, they don't concern themselves with anybody else's suffering because I'm suffering. Come on. Anybody seen that in yourself? (laughs) I don't care what you're going through. You don't know what I'm going through. And sometimes we set it up there like nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrows. And we feel that we're the worst sufferers in all the world. As if the worst thing has happened to us. And nobody else's suffering matters. And nobody else can relate to it. Nobody else has ever suffered just like this before. When the reality of it is, is that what we're going through is pretty common to everybody. That there's somebody else out there, whatever you've gone through, somebody else out there has gone through it. Okay, so you're not alone. And if it's not exactly like it, it's similar to it. It's analogous to it, and we can relate. God's given us the ability to empathize. That you can't go through anything in this world that somebody else out there hasn't gone through it. And if you put it in general principles, Christ has gone through it. Christ has suffered in every way, like we are, he, he can sympathize with us. You understand that if it's abuse, he was abused. If it's rejection, he was rejected. If it's being sold out by your friends, he was sold out. If it's being talked about behind your back, he's been talked about. Who's been crucified? You see where we're going with that? Nobody suffered like Jesus. He died on the cross for our sin, and yet in the midst of his suffering, was he saying, oh, poor me? No, he's looking down at his mom and saying, I'm concerned about your suffering. That's selfless. That's selfless. That's the contrast of the alternative. Sadly, too many Christians have been like that. We've not always lived the selfless kind of life that Jesus demonstrated. We sometimes lived as pathetic victims of a cruel world, and we forget other people's problems because our pain is too big. But not Jesus. He didn't didn't think only of himself here. He thought about the well-being of his mom. The cross is all about love, and it's not just 
generic love as an ideal, like Jesus died as an ideal for love, but it's personal love expressed concretely through a sacrifice. Like he's dying for our sins, not just the sins of the world, our sins. Do you understand the difference? Like there's one thing to die for an ideal. It's another thing to die for people, having people in mind. That's what he did. He died for our sins. And he loves us and he cares for us. And in the middle of the world's suffering, he cares for what's going on for us. It's all about love, but not just the ideal expressed concretely through sacrifice. It's not just the love of the world. It's the love for his mother and for John and for you and for me. Calvin said, though horrible blasphemies against God filled his, his mind with inconceivable grief, and though the sustained and dreadful contest with eternal death and with the devil, still none of these things prevented him from being anxious about his mother. That's kind of beautiful, isn't it? That he could be fighting on the global scale, on the cosmic scale, a war against the devil and death, and yet he was concerned about his mom. Let me point out two things by way of application, and then we'll conclude. This will be quick enough, I think. First, uh, I think there's a profound point of theology in this. How great is the love of Jesus that it should be displayed like this? How the all-embracing and and how personal at the same time. He forgives those who've crucified him from the cross. Not just those who put him there in the sense that we put him there, but those who were there nailing him to the cross. He forgave them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He forgave them. Okay? It's it's one thing. You know this is true. It's one thing to talk about forgiveness and to say we ought to forgive and to feel that we're pretty forgiving people. But then when somebody actually offends us, do you know what I'm talking about? That's a lot harder when it's a concrete, actual thing that happened. And Jesus does both. He loves from the cross and forgives from the cross all humanity, but he forgives those who nailed him there immediately. Do you see how it comes home and it's where the rubber meets the road? This is the kind of Jesus that we worship and serve. He forgives those <clears throat> before he came to the cross and those who've not yet been born, you and me. That he would love the world and that he could love me and also that he could care about eternal matters like the defeat of Satan and the conquering of sin. And he could also be concerned that Mary gets her next meal. Do you see the... Do you see how broad his love is and how practical his love is? He cares about the big things and the small. And he said so much in his teaching, didn't he? He said, your father knows when one of these sparrows falls out of the sky, and you're worth more than what? Many sparrows. (laughs) Aren't you glad? When we get to heaven, maybe we can do some arithmetic and find out how many sparrows we're worth. They're worth many. I know that. So he forgives and he loves. He cares about the big needs and the small need, small needs. Um, Hero's response to those, I think, that think that, and this is common, God's too busy saving the world's problems, dealing with the world's problems, saving the world, 
answering prayers about war to care about my small present need. I've heard that as a pastor. You probably heard that. You probably thought that. Like, I don't need to bother God with that. That's so small. But this, to me, suggests that that's not the way God works. That he cares about the cosmic things, and by that I mean things that involve all of mankind throughout history and the world. And he cares about the little things. Give us today our daily bread. Both of those. And so let's not ever come to God and be patronizing with prayer and be like, I'm just not going to bother God with that. It's too small. Nothing's too small. Right? Nothing's too small. God cares about it. And Jesus has made that point in his teaching. He cares about spiritual needs and the needs of provision. And it's not just things that we think of as spiritual that he cares about. He cares about everyday stuff as well, things that we consider common. Okay, That's, to me, a profound point of theology is that God is the God of the big and the small, and he cares about everything. Christ on the cross cared about what he was doing and saving the world, and he cared about the present needs of his mom. The second point is a point, a persuasive point of love. I, you judge for yourself whether it's persuasive. I think the persuasive part is that it comes from Jesus' example. This is kingdom kind of love. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus uh, looking down at his mom and John and saying, John, will you care for her? Okay. And doing it in the midst of his own pain and suffering. There's a book, and just the title is provocative enough, called Wounded Healer. Sometimes we're in the midst of our own wounds, and we wonder, how can we help anybody else? But I don't know that anybody oh, this side of heaven is completely whole. Do you understand what I mean by that? I mean we're in the process of being healed. We're, we're healed, but, but we're, still, we're still fighting. We're still struggling. We're still being perfected. So nobody's arrived yet. I hate to burst your bubble. Nobody's arrived yet, and so we have to, in our imperfect state, still minister to other people, and we can do it because God's enabled us to. In our pain, we can still see other people healed. I remember hearing about uh, Smith Wigglesworth, who he saw a lot of people healed, but he battled kidney stones. And sometimes while he was dealing with kidney stones, he would lay hands on sick people, and they'd get healed. Go figure that out. That... You can, as a sick person, see God heal other people. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. I don't, I've never had one. Uh, thank the Lord, and with, hopefully that will never happen. But uh, it is impressive. But the point is that it's following Jesus' example. This is the new love that's modeled for followers of Christ within the Christian community. Instead of dwelling on our own pain, the model of Jesus is that we love in a way that's self-forgetful. This kind of love can actively love others through our own pain because it's energized by God, not by ourselves, not by a grit. Instead of self-pity, why not encourage somebody who's hurting? It's, it's the Jesus way. A lot of people, if you look at just the 
the story in the gospel, the stories, look at the different gospels, and you see Jesus wasn't the only one that died on the cross that day. Who are the others that were with him? Two thieves. What was their general disposition at first? They, what's that? <laughs> That's the understatement of the year. <laughs> The thieves on the cross weren't having a good day. Yeah, that's true. They're insulting him. They're deriding him. They've got self-pity, like they don't belong there. One of them finally says to the other one, hey, we deserve to be here. You know, if you're really the son of God, get us down from the cross. They deserve, And the one said... Finally, you can see a change because it says that the two thieves at first were railing on him, and then there's a change that takes place. Maybe they witnessed how Jesus interacted on the cross or how he responded to the cross. Maybe, we don't, we don't know for sure, but maybe they saw how he responded to his mother. I don't know. But they said, today will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Remember me in paradise. And he said, oh, I'll remember you in paradise. You'll be with me in paradise today. Just one of them. Yeah, I'm not trying to preach them both into heaven. A point. Yeah, that does. That does. And I, I think uh, the point I really wanna, wanted to bring home here is that in the midst of this suffering, when a lot of people, we turn our... Um, focus a lot of times in on ourself when we're going through hardship. And what we see of Jesus is that it never shifts. Even when he's going through suffering, he's still others-focused. And I want to suggest to you that's the cruciform life. That's the way to be. It's the right way to be. It's the Christian way to be. Anything less than that is sub-Christian. Yes, he was, concerning himself with other people, writing to Timothy, saying, encouraging him, fight the good fight, I fought the good fight, and, and challenging him to be a good pastor and not thinking about himself, not in full of self-pity. God help us if we come to times of suffering that we're not like that, we're not full of self-pity. I want to preach a message, I'm warning you, you guys might want to switch churches real quick. But I'm, I've been preparing a message for a few weeks now on selfism. And it's a big problem. And it's one of the things that has to be uprooted in us, in the church, if we're going to be more effective. Yes. Well, that, all of that is true. Um, I think that, yes, we, we need to love God first. I think that's a given. I, I was hoping that that would be taken for granted and that in response to that, um, our life would be outward. And in terms of John being Jesus' cousin, uh, I agree with you. I think that it, couldn't, it doesn't matter at the end of the day what that was. I think it's just a good explanation, and I think it's true that he happens to be Jesus' cousin. Uh, whether it's the point or not, I don't know. John doesn't seem to make it the point for himself, but I thought it was a fascinating piece of Scripture. 
Um, but I do think that the proper response, we do need to love others with the love of God that he pours uh, out into our lives and that too often as Christians, we can see our spiritual lives as only horizontal. And so uh, we think, okay, it's just me and God and I'm good and spiritual as long as I've got this relationship going. But the point that I'm trying to make tonight is that, yes, this relationship has to result in a kind of selflessness. And I don't want us to be guilty of being selfish, self-centered. We do need to be God-centered. And I, I hope you know from my preaching overall, that's where I think it's at, is that we need to be God-centered. But as a response to that, he has us put in our hands out. Do you know the Salvation Army motto? Anybody? Heart to God, hands to man. Heart to God, hands to man. That's God's call. And so uh, that's what I wanted to challenge us with tonight, that while he's on the cross, he was, de- he was thinking about others and not himself. And so I challenge us in that tonight. Amen? I've got a minute over. Why don't we stand? Thanks for your attention tonight. If we can go away with this, uh, away from this without seeing how unique Jesus really is, then we've missed the point of this story. And he is magnificent in death. Who's like him? Who can eclipse our hero, right? No one can love um, in the grand and the tiny like Jesus does. Amen. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. I pray that you would uh, challenge us, that whatever we're going through, that there are other people that we can minister to. And I pray that you help us to put ourselves aside, to serve you and to serve one another. And I pray, God, that you help us to get over what seems to be the pandemic of our world, which is selfishness, self-centeredness, self, selfism, and to really go after God and to love him. Pray for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.